0: Welcome to episode 88 of Greater Than Code. I'm Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my great friend, Jessica Kerr. Good
1: morning. Thank you, Jamie. And I am here with John Sowers.
2: Good morning, everyone. I'm here with Stephen Sharrock. Stephen is a chartered psychologist and chartered ergonomist and human factors specialist interested in real human and system behavior with experience in aviation, rail, and onshore process industries, healthcare, and government administration. He currently works at Eurocontrol, primarily as a safety culture program leader, and as editor-in-chief of Eurocontrol's Hindsight magazine, which is a magazine on the safety of air traffic management. He blogs at humanisticsystems.com and has recently co-edited Human Factors and Ergonomics in Practice, Improving Performance and well-being in the Real World. And he is married and has two wonderful daughters. Welcome, Stephen.
3: Thank you so much. It's a it's a real pleasure to be here and thanks for inviting me.
0: Thanks for coming
2: on. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on the things that we talk about. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. Well, I'm 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 curious as to where the conversation goes.
1: Yeah, me too. So, Stephen, you do a lot of conscious work on consciously getting humans to work together smoothly?
3: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's part of what I do. So, my work is um kind of partly in the human machine interface and the other part is on the human human interface so it's both of those aspects
0: i have a question for you a question that we often start out the show with which is what is your superpower and how did how did you come to acquire it
3: right i've got two answers to that i'll just give one so my wife would say that i'm a super recognizer uh, and I've been tested for this, and apparently I am a super recognizer. So a super recognizer is someone who can recognize faces or can see similarities between faces. So you might, I might see a face once, and um, I'll rarely forget that face. So I, I recognize that face a long time afterwards. Or else I'll see a face maybe on the TV, and I think that person, you know, she looks like this other person. And then my wife will say, "That's absolutely right. That's amazing. Now I can see it." Uh, the, the, the problem is, I don't know who the other person is that I'm thinking of because I don't memorize names of like you know movie stars or pop stars or anything like that. So I just memorize the faces. So that's the superpower, I guess.
1: That's really interesting. Wow, like that's like an officially recognized superpower.
3: It is. There's, um, res- there's research on it. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's the police. <laughs> the police use super, uh, people what? with this superpower. Yeah, for sure.
0: Hmm. You did say you have two, and then you said you were only going to tell us one. And I have to say, I kind of want to hear the other one.
3: (laughs) Right. Well, uh, (laughs) The other one. I was asked this question before um, uh, by Courtney Nash on on a podcast that she did with O'Reilly. I grew up in quite a large family, and I grew up in a family business. Um, so I was working from a young age in that family business. Um, and I grew up around, I guess, some tension around the family business. And what I guess I learned to do from a young age was really focus on what was going on in social situations and who was feeling what, um, especially if there's any tension around and really picking up on that. And so I do a lot of group work nowadays. I do a lot of work with groups of various kinds. Uh, and that can be useful. It can also be a hindrance because I might be aware of something but unable to do anything about it.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That does that does relate to what we talked about. Was it just last week about empathy as a superpower that you can't turn off?
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's pretty much the case. It, it's a good thing in one way, but in another way, you're aware of something that you may not be able to do something about either because you've not got the skills or you've not got the opportunity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, blissful ignorance can be its own superpower.
3: Right. Yeah, that's true as well.
1: <laughs> so, Stephen, have you worked in other industries besides air traffic control?
3: Yeah, so I I started out in air traffic control um, in 1997, and I'm, I'm back in that industry now and have been for the last eight or so years. But during the time since then, I've worked in um, onshore process industries, such as chemical manufacturing. I've worked in the railway industry. I've worked in healthcare a little bit and uh, also in border security, for instance. Um, so if, as a consultant, I've worked in various different industries, but most of my experience has been in transportation and particularly aviation.
1: What is your mission?
3: I suppose I identify primarily as a, as a human factors specialist and human factors is really about it has two goals so one is improving system performance um but there's a parallel goal which is equally important and that's improving or optimizing human well-being so you know these two things are equally weighted um, if you focus too much on the system performance without human well-being, then you've got unhappy, unhealthy, unsafe people. Uh, and if you focus solely on on uh, the human well-being without looking how the system is working, then potentially you have an ineffective or inefficient system. And so it's trying to get it's always trying to get that balance, really.
1: That is super fascinating.
2: I, I like how the the built into that model that you have there that the, the well-being of the humans in the system is actually a safety factor. It's not right. just nice
3: to have. It's, it's a critical part of things running properly. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is. It's, if I think about air traffic controllers, for instance, then their well-being, their psychological safety, is relevant from you know the moment that they get to work, from before they get to work, all the way through, when they're working, um, and then it's relevant when they leave work. If they have an incident, any kind of unwanted event, a safety incident, it's relevant at that time as well. So it's actually a, it's necessary for them to do the job. Their well-being is necessary for them to do the job. It's not just a nice-to-have, it's a need-to-have, and it's also an ethical responsibility to look after them. So within safety, there are various stress management programs for Air traffic controllers, for instance, particularly uh, acute stress that may arrive as a result of some kind of incident. But generally, within human factors and ergonomics, these two goals of the the performance of the system as the whole and the well-being of individuals are seen as interactive and um, completely integrated. There's no separating one from the other.
1: I feel like we talk about this a lot in software communities when, cause we talk about psychological safety and team building. And yet I feel like you've actually studied it with a lot more rigor.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. I guess for us, we, we, we take it for granted that that's what our discipline is about. But when you think about it, those two goals should be core to every branch of work you know no matter what you do there should be a focus on human well-being and there should be a focus on system performance and there should not be a significant imbalance between the two of those so when you're doing any kind of measurement or evaluation or improvement or analysis for me un- unless there's some focus on both of those goals then you're not really doing a good job um, because either you're focusing perhaps quite mechanically on system outcomes and is the system performing effectively, or else you're just focusing maybe on, on human health uh, and safety, uh, which is fine. And that's many people's jobs, but th- neither of these can exist in isolation.
0: I'm wondering if you could expand on like what that actually looks like in the workplace for you. Yeah. Like I think you just mentioned stress reduction kind of programs, and I'm wondering like what that entails.
3: Right. So one of those is called uh, critical incident stress management. Now, that's a peer group um, initiative where peers, so air traffic controllers, are trained to intervene or to help when another air traffic controller experiences a distressing event. Now, a distressing event could be, for instance, uh, where two aircraft have come into very close conflict with each other which for us would be a serious safety incident. It could be when there's actually an accident. So there could be an accident on the runway or in the air. Or it could be another event, such as the suicide of a colleague, for instance. It's been used in that kind of scenario. Then what happens is these trained peers will intervene to help the the, peop- the person or the person's uh, affected. Uh, and because they're peers, they have a certain advantage compared to professional psychologists such as myself. Because they're peers, they understand what it means to be an air traffic controller or for you guys, what it means to be a coder. You know, I'm I'm not a controller and I'm not a coder. So I can observe you and I can spend a lot of time talking to you and analyzing your work, but I'll never really know what it means to be Uh, A controller or a coder or a pilot. And so there are certain advantages to having peers uh, doing this kind of work. And then there's issues such as chronic stress or burnout, which affects people in all industries as well. And then there's occupational safety, for instance. So you might be an electrician working on a very high voltage circuit. So these are the more well-being aspects. But then In parallel, we look at the system performance aspects. So how well are people collaborating? How well is the interface between people, machines, and procedures working? So we're interested in all of those things. And we try to incorporate all of that into our measurements whenever we can.
1: One of the things I read about in your magazine was that team building, that bonding social capital isn't sufficient for system performance.
3: Yeah, so what what i was talking about there was the difference between two kinds of social capital so social capital is a little bit it's like your economic capital you know that's your that's your wealth so social capital is your social wealth and uh, largely that will be about uh, trust and uh, interconnections relationships between yourself and other people
1: is that closely related to psychological safety
3: um It's It would be because one kind of social capital is often called bonding social capital. So these are the kinds of bonds that you have within a group of like-minded people. So within a like-minded group of air traffic controllers, for instance, there will be strong bonding capital. That means there's strong bonds between those individuals. And therefore, there will be uh, a certain amount of psychological safety. But that's just one kind of social capital. The other kind of social capital, which is more neglected in our day-to-day interactions, is bridging social capital. So this is a social capital that exists between different groups who are not like-minded. In my environment, that would be groups such as air traffic controllers and engineers, who are two Different groups of people, but they, they both have operational responsibilities and they're both absolutely necessary for the service and for safety, but they're very different people. They don't hang out together. They don't perform the same kind of jobs. They don't really understand each other's worlds. Another group is management, for instance. So what I'm more interested in is the bonds between those groups than the bonds within the groups within the groups bonds. Look after themselves more or less. You have lots of day to day contact, feedback, chances to smooth things over when things go wrong. But between two groups, that's much harder. I'm more interested in that kind of social capital.
0: How does that work when there's like clashing between the groups? Like when you were talking about that, I was thinking about like as a programmer to interact with, say, the customer success team is sometimes like more clashing because what they Want is not always the same as what I want or what I can do. And so I'm wondering, like, how do those bonds get formed? And how do they I don't know, I'm not gonna say get mended, but like, stay uh, healthy.
3: In a similar way to how the bonds within groups form, uh, except that you have different interests and different perspectives and different worldviews, but within groups, you need contact between individuals, whether that's personal contact, which is ideal or, or remote contact, but you need, you need contact. So bringing people together from diverse groups from different groups is one way to build that. So an example would be like um, a barbecue. I mean, If you were to think, who would I invite from my organization to a small, friendly barbecue? And would it actually be just people from your own group, like-minded kind of people who do the same kind of job? Or would you think about people who do something really quite different, but is somehow related to the flow of work from end to end? maybe they support your work or maybe you support their work um or, or something like that. So um getting that kind of social contact and ideally quite regular social contact is important. So that's that's one way for everybody. But there's another thing going on here and that is within any group, whether you are programmers and whether you're working in, in development or operations, you will tend to find that there are people who we might call connectors. And these tend to be the people who are well-connected, not only within the like-minded group, but also between groups. They tend to have quite strong connections between different groups. And those people in particular, you probably notice, are able to pull together people from diverse groups and put people in contact with each other. Ah, you know, you're interested in this. I know someone else from over here in this different group who's interested in this, that kind of thing. So connectors have uh, a particular function. And this word connector is one that comes up in an approach called uh, asset-based community development. Uh, And that's an approach to developing natural communities, but equally in many ways applies to work situations.
1: What do you mean by natural
3: communities? So by natural communities, I mean small place-based communities. So wherever you live, you know, neighborhoods, you would probably say. Oh. Those so kind like ge- of geography. Right. That's right. Yeah. So asset-based community development or ABCD has been used with those place-based communities as a way of connecting people within a community. And within a community, people may be like-minded in some ways. Uh, they may be of typical of a similar wealth level or something, but in other ways, they'll be quite different. And so that's an approach called ABCD that could be used within organizations. And ABCD is something that we introduce, uh, within Europe, within aviation to try to encourage this perspective, not only within like-minded, tight-knit groups of professionals, but between groups to actually form those bonds those bridge bridges rather that bridging social capital.
1: What is ABCD is that like a collection of techniques?
3: It's probably best described as a description of how really healthy communities function. Let me define it first of all by its opposite. So what you'll find in some communities is that there are certain uh, maybe issues and problems within the communities as there are within any community. And professionals from the outside come in to try to solve the problems in the community, which may be about vandalism, they may be about addiction, they could be about childcare, all sorts of things, right? So that's a kind of professionalized approach where issues within communities are dealt with primarily by professionals who come in from the outside to deal with those issues. The focus there is on deficiencies. It's what, it's on what's wrong with the community rather than what might be right with the community. So ABCD takes a very different approach. And what it does is it really starts by looking at, well, instead of starting with what the community doesn't have, why don't we start with what the community has? And we'll call those things assets. Assets can be people, for instance. They can be places, they can be means of interaction, such as Skype or Slack, or the cricket ground close to me here. They could be institutions, the local school, the local church, for instance. So every community has certain assets, whether it's a natural community or a work community. And what ABCD does is try to uncover, discover, and connect those assets, particularly Assets between uh, in different people and between different people.
1: That's really interesting. So instead of saying what's failing, you say why is this successful, and then use that to make it more successful.
3: Yeah, and and it, th- that's similar in a way to a, an approach called appreciative inquiry. But ABCD, and we can come back to appreciative inquiry, but ABCD or asset-based community development is a, a natural approach to understanding. First of all, what's strong in the community, and to give an analogy, if you were to go to the uh, the store, the supermarket, as we call it, a good thing to do is to look in your cupboard first to see what you've got, right? The alternative <laughs> approach so the alternative <laughs> approach is you just go to the store and you get a load of stuff. And then when you get back, you realize that you've, oh, we've already got salmon. We didn't need more salmon, for instance. So it's good to look in the cupboard, to see what you've got first. So ABCD opens the doors and looks into the cupboard. Now, when it comes down to people, which is what community is all about, ABCD is interested in three things that people have. The first of those things is gifts. So everybody, no matter who they are, would have gifts. And a gift might be what your mother would say you were good at, for instance. Oh, John, he was always good at this. You know, Mary. Your superpower. Yeah, yeah. like some Something like that. Your superpowers. You know, you've always been good at that. She was always good at climbing trees or, you know, he was always good at drawing or something like that. Right. So these could be your gifts. Always been a good conversationalist, you know. So those are gifts. The, The second thing is skills. So we all have skills, of course, but most of the skills we have, we've probably learned. Like nobody's born uh, a programmer uh, or a coder. You you tend to learn it. You might be gifted at it as well. You may have a disposition for it, but you tend to learn it. It's a skill. So that's the second thing. And a skill is something you can teach somebody else, typically. And the third thing is a passion. A passion is something that you feel strongly enough about that you want to act on it. You feel really strongly about it. Regardless of how good you are at it, you feel strongly. You're drawn to do it. So that's the third thing. And ABCD tries to discover people's gift skills and passions and connect them between different people who may share the s- similar gift skills or passions or may have a need for those gifts. They may be able to receive those gifts.
1: So this is a conscious development of bridging social capital based on commonalities or complementary characteristics there?
3: Yeah, it's it's an act that starts small and it's non-professionalized. As an example, you could just go to see some of your neighbors. And by the way, this could be in your natural community. So it could be your next door neighbor, or it could be neighbors in your organization that you've never spoke to before. right? And you just start some conversations about what, what their interests are, what they can do what they could teach somebody else. So it may be, for instance, that there's an old person in your neighborhood who's really quite old, and you get talking to them. You discover that they were around during Second World War, for instance. They'd have to be pretty old, but perhaps they were around then. And they're interested in it, and they like to talk about it. You may find that the local school actually teaches some classes on the Second World War, and they could do with someone like that to help out, because certainly the teachers weren't there. And so you can connect these people. Someone who has a, a particular passion for talking about that and somebody else who has a particular need for it. Similarly, you may find that somebody has a very good singing voice. They're a great singer. And you might be a member of a choir that needs a great singer. And so it's just finding out actually what people are good at or what they're drawn to doing and uh, how others can join in that in, a, in an orchestra or whether they can benefit from it, whether they can receive it.
1: So if you do this, if you talk to the people and consciously link them up with each other, then you become a connector.
3: Yeah, that's right. So in, in the, 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 in studies of communities and of ABCD in particular, and there are a few key people in this field. So one is John McKnight, who wrote, uh, he wrote a couple of books. One was Careless Society. Uh, community and its counterfeits. And the second was the abundant community, which he wrote with Peter Block. So th- they, uh, they're two figures in this field. And another one is Cormac Russell, who does, he's a, a friend of mine, um, who does a lot of work n- now in uh, ABCD. Um, so connectors have a certain number of characteristics, but generally this is not a role that they have. It's just who they are. They just, they're naturally find that they have this connecting capacity they just naturally do it
1: does it have to be natural or can it be a choice it sounds like connecting is an activity
3: oh yeah yeah it it could be a gift or it could be a skill and it could also be a passion Ah. so of course some people are just naturally kind of let's say gifted in this way they just they never learned how to do it they just they just do it i certainly meet people like this in, in in air traffic control I'll do a lot of workshops, focus groups, and so on. And then someone will come up to me in the break or typically before the workshops even begun and they'll introduce themselves and they'll, you know, they'll tell me about what they do and what other people do. And then, and then later I'll find out that they are quite active in the professional association, for instance, and they're just drawn to doing that, you know? So, uh, but other people, of course, l- you can learn this as a skill. You You can go out of your way to actually do this. Uh, It's something that anybody can actually do, but some people are just more naturally drawn to do it, I guess.
1: It seems like connecting would be very generative in the sense of it builds a stronger team as a whole, even while you sitting in the coffee room don't look particularly productive.
3: Right. I mean, when you look at the literature on business, there's a whole lot of books on leadership for example, aren't there? You've got tons of stuff, yeah. tons of articles on leadership. I mean, I, I, I couldn't care less if nothing more was ever written on leadership. I think we've got enough <laughs> on leadership, to be honest. But how much do you ever find on this connecting role? You know, how much material do you find on these people who, they're not leaders. They're not trying to lead anyone anywhere, but they have this capacity to connect people for the for the greater good. You know, and there's very little written about them but then as soon as you you hear a connector described you'll you'll nod your head and say yeah i can think of some i certainly know some people who are like that maybe you yourselves are 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 involved in that in this connecting
0: i definitely can relate to the kind of stuff that you're saying is like the way that i feel that i am and for me what the way i think about it is that I believe there are like forces of serendipity in the universe, not like in a mystical way, but just in like, you know, a lot of coincidences happen and a lot of fortuitous coincidences happen. I often see them. And I think that being open to that kind of serendipity is what makes me good at what you're describing, because I kind of... If I need something or someone else needs something, it's very easy for me, I guess, to be like, okay, well, other times in my life when this has come up, you know, I've ran into something in a serendipitous way. And because that's happened to me before, I can hope for that in the future. And it it often comes to, to fruition. And I guess I wonder if you think that, like, serendipity is like... I think it's an actual factor, but I wonder if you think it's an actual factor.
3: <laughs> well, I think, you know, for people with this connecting capacity, it probably is. And there's, there's a certain amount of intuition. I mean, if, if you're going to connect people, you've got to do it at the right time and in the right way, for instance. And uh, what my friend Cormac Russell says to me, having studied many, many people in communities that he would recognize as connectors, is what they typically do, they will just very casually Connect two people together who have a a common interest, a common passion, a common skill, or one would benefit from another person's skill. Uh, and then they walk away. You know, there's, they've no vested interest in staying in touch. And there's nothing in it for them either. There's nothing in it for the connector. And that probably differentiates them from someone who is more of a networker, as Cormac would say, you know, a networker. You see this on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is like, the forum for networking in some ways so there's a lot of networking goes on but this is business oriented and there's a bit of quid pro quo involved and there's a bit of face involved and a bit of image involved so that's quite different to the more natural connecting which is purely out of a desire to connect to people for their own benefit and a greater good
0: that's really interesting because i was thinking about networking when you were describing it but that makes sense do you think that even if there, even if there's nothing, you know, necessarily real that's in it for them, do you think that there's an aspect of social capital that comes along with being known as like a person who can do this?
3: I'm not so sure that people with this connecting capacity are even all that aware of it. <laughs> I think they just kind of do it. It's something I'm interested in. And in some ways I would see myself in this role because i'm i'm interested in the connecting different groups for instance researchers and practitioners i see myself on the edge of both of those or between different worlds healthcare and aviation for instance but actually that's more of what we'd call a gapping role so you're trying to fill the gap between different worlds and that's a little bit different but that's something that i'm probably more drawn to myself i'm interested in these connections um but i think connectors themselves are just people that you naturally find in workplaces in communities and if you ask people who they were you described a connector people would know who they are
0: I'm thinking about it in social situations, too, like the difference between someone who has different friend groups and keeps them separate versus someone who has different friend groups and kind of mashes them all together. Like, like everyone should know each other.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's a good one. Uh, another one, for instance, will be I, I feel myself doing this in a social group. If I'm in a, a small group of three, four people talking, you know, this happens at conferences and then I see someone on their own nearby. I'm very distracted then because I want to kind of bring this person into the conversation. So it may may relate to those kinds of things in that social setting as well.
0: I wonder how much empathy plays a part too, which I wasn't necessarily thinking about when you were talking about like connecting people with similar interests. But then when you mentioned like wanting to bring someone who's standing alone into a group, I think that's like a very empathetic response to seeing someone by themselves.
3: Yeah, that's a kind of social empathy. And that's the kind of thing that I was very aware of from a very young age. Again, being in a big family, being the middle child, you know, and um being in a family business as well, where you always have a lot of tension in family businesses. And so it's a kind of th- and then you have staff that work with you and it, family businesses are complicated things to grow up in. You know, that's a kind of social empathy. And, and there are different kinds of empathy, you know, so there's um there's cognitive empathy. Versus emotional empathy, which is uh, – th- these are also two, two different things. Somebody can cognitively understand what somebody else is experiencing, and that's probably quite a large part of my job because I have to understand different professions and their work. That's kind of a routine part of my world. And then there's emotional empathy, which is kind of understanding – their world on this more uh, effective emotional level, what they're actually experiencing emotionally, uh, which is a different thing. and We we may be more skilled or gifted in one or the other, but those are just two types of empathy. There are others others as well, and I'm sure that they all feed into this thing.
1: Yeah, and when you notice those people standing alone and you bring them in, you create serendipity.
3: Yeah, I think so. And the most important thing I would say is just that they feel valued, you know, that they feel wanted um yeah and you you see this in conferences you know all the time you know there there are people who feel a bit awkward and they're on their own and it's it's so easy just to go over to them and just to say hey do you want to come and come and join in welcome you know come and join us um it's a really it's a really easy thing to do and people feel good about that and that's good
0: i totally agree with you Jess, about creating serendipity like it's something that can't happen unless you talk to someone, like if that person that's standing alone has something like really interesting and relevant to say about what you're talking about. But like, if you didn't bring them in, you would never know that. And so that never would have happened.
1: And sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's like awkward to go talk to the person who's standing alone. But I feel like if, if I like take on that awkward for them, then the worst that can happen is I feel awkward and I'm fine with that. But the best that can happen is unbounded.
0: Yeah, there's so many great things that have like happened to me that like would never have happened if me or someone around me hadn't like taken an initiative like that.
3: Yeah, there's a just there's a kind of just do it thing about all of that. I think. I mean, I to many people I'd appear as an extrovert. You know, certainly at a conference um, I'd probably appear that way, but I'm actually very much an introvert. It's just that I've trained myself. It's a skill that I've trained myself to be able to do those kinds of things. And so I I may appear extrovert and people will be surprised when when I tell them that, no, I, I score quite intensely introverted, you know, on many tests. I really do. But I've trained myself to do things like that. If someone's on their own, go and grab them. You know, if someone's you sense that someone's excluded, then include them. Go and sit next to them, you know, ask them what they're reading. You know, what they thought of the last session, whatever.
0: How do you train yourself for that? Just practice, like being conscious and practicing?
3: Just to do it. Just yeah, over just, and over. Yeah, just, to, just, <laughs> just actually to do it. Because I mean, if, if you're feeling awkward doing it, they're probably feeling awkward as well. And then you'll laugh and then you'll get talking about something in common. And ABCD is, is a great thing just to keep in mind for that. You know, just to find out what it is that people are into, what, what it is that they're, skilled in such that they could teach somebody else what do they feel strongly about that they could you know mobilize to take action about you know about it so you start this with this question about superpower so (laughs) so you begin this whole conversation on an asset footing Uh, Hmm. so you you can do that in any interaction you know doesn't have to be a podcast you can do that just in anything just to be curious about what are strengths and how you could connect those up with other people that you know?
0: I think an awesome side effect of this ABCD is like, it's awesome to listen to people talk about something they love just in general. Like it's really awesome to like, if someone's talking really excitedly about something that I have no idea, like I'm still just like, I'm so (laughs) happy that you're like so happy to tell me this. And so I think like that's, Something that you'll experience if you're, you know, practicing this method or
3: whatever. Yeah, I I saw I saw a great example of this. I was in Glasgow in Scotland, and I was in a workshop on ABCD presented by Cormac Russell and uh, and and a colleague, and they were talking about a local guy who was unemployed, and in the community he was just kind of known as, you know, the guy who's unemployed and whatever his name was, (laughs) Bill. Right? It turned out. When they got into conversation that he was a, um, what do you call it? A woodworker, a a carpenter. They got into conversation. They found out that someone else had a whole load of wood they didn't need. They wanted to get rid of this wood, right? So they connected these two people together so that this guy, Bill, who in, in days gone by was a very skilled woodworker, had this wood. Just so happened, there was also a local school that said they could really use some like benches, you know, with like a little table in between. Hey, presto, before they knew it, Bill had built these amazing benches, the kind that you'd buy in a garden store, and he just made them. Didn't cost him any money. Somebody gave him the wood that they didn't want. And then over time, he became known as Bill, the, uh, the carpenter again, right? And his products were now he was able to sell them. Just because someone had started to have that conversation about what is it you're into? What do you like doing? What could you teach someone else to do? You know, what do you feel strongly about? What do you enjoy? Those kind of questions. And just um soon within within a, a small group, you know, of just a few people, just three, four people, with your neighbors, with your colleagues, uh, you'll start to find out things about people that you didn't know.
1: That's so that's cool. super actionable.
3: Yeah, it's a wonderful way to
2: sort of predispose the new relationships you're forming towards interestingness and, and serendipity and strength.
0: And positivity. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's interesting how this relates to safety. So one one reason, right, that I'm interested in A, B, C, D is because one of my roles is as a safety specialist. So I've worked in the safety of high risk industries for my whole career, more or less. Uh, And safety has a very deficit based approach because naturally it's always been interested in things that go wrong or things that could go wrong. But when you look at people's work, no matter what they do, but when you look at certainly an air traffic controller's work, most of the time things are not going wrong. Things are going right, or at least things are going okay. Sometimes things are going really well. It's only a very small amount of time, maybe not, not even a few minutes a day when something's going really wrong, something's going really badly. That could be quite rare. A, an air traffic controller, for instance, could go a whole year or two years without having a safety incident that's where two aircraft come within a prescribed distance of each other. That's not even an accident. So if you only study when it comes to air traffic controllers or programmers, if you only focus on where things go wrong, you don't understand how things go. And you certainly don't understand why things normally go right or why sometimes things go really, really right. And so the first approach where we look at why things go wrong that deficit-based approach, has been called by Eric Holnagel, who's a, a long been a pioneer in safety thinking, that's been called safety one. You can think like web one, okay? So safety one is the traditional approach to safety management. The approach that's based more on looking at, well, what goes right, or at least what goes, how do things normally work, hmm. that's called safety two. So that's a kind of a, you know, a, a contrast in two ways of thinking about safety – And the link with ABCD is that we're starting to use asset-based community development to understand why things go well. What are the assets that groups have that help to ensure that things go well? And how can we uncover them? How can we connect them, expand them?
1: So when you start noticing what helps things go right, then you start appreciating assets like people who are connectors.
3: Absolutely. People who are connectors are usually in the background. I mean, they're there. Everybody knows them, but they're not rewarded. They're not appreciated. So you might uncover the connectors, for instance. That's something I'm always interested in. But you might also just uncover just little practices that people really appreciate. You know, What is it that you do that you really appreciate? So you you start to uncover these things, and then you can start to spread them. They may be little practices. They may be just small things that people do. You know, you've probably met people who are good at giving compliments. You meet them and they make you feel good. You know. Some people are just naturally like that. My wife's one of those, for instance. Other people are not naturally like that, but they can learn that as a skill. You know, when And if
1: you appreciate if you if you notice it and start appreciating that as an organization, then people will learn it as a skill.
3: That's right. Then it starts to spread. Then it starts to spread. When you focus on assets, you discover previously unseen practices i can give an example i went to one organization once and they had no formal scheme for refresher training so this is training that you should have every year or two years or three years on rare occurrences like thunderstorms or so on um, which would be rare in some part of the world and not in others or it could be an aircraft emergency Anyway, in one particular tower, in in one particular airport, the controller said, well, we don't actually have our own formal scheme here. You know, the company has not provided one. And so we just do it ourselves. We just organize. We got together. We make some little scenarios. And we just do it ourselves. Another example was a, a Swedish controller friend of mine said that they used to get together, her and her colleagues, and they'd create moral dilemmas. So they'd write down some interesting little moral dilemmas, which we've now used as a as a workshop technique. And you introduce the moral dilemmas to people and you say, what would you do? There's no good outcome in this particular dilemma. What would you do? When you start to ask people, you find out that these things are going on. But if you only focus on what's going wrong, then, of course, you don't see them.
1: And then you might accidentally fire all the connectors in the next round of layoffs.
3: <laughs> possibly. Yeah, Possibly.
2: I really am enjoying the positive twist that you're taking towards approaching the safety issues. Whereas you look at increasing the amount of time that things go right versus minimizing the time amount of time that things go wrong. I think a lot of the, you know, literature and stories that I'm familiar with, uh, focus on the pathological cases like the Nut Island effect and Three Mile Island and things like that, where there were bad situations that, that arose out of poor systems design or poor, you know, uh, cultures. Uh, but I think changing the focus around to looking at the positive ways that you can do that, I think is far more productive and and also o- avoids trying to always find blame for things when they go wrong, because the blame could be the system and a- avoiding that is certainly helpful.
3: Right. And um, well, what we found is that frontline practitioners, such as air traffic controllers, in particular, but also engineers, they really appreciate this safety two because they feel that this is just a natural description of how things work and it acknowledges the whole rather than just the occasional rare time that things go wrong. What safety two also does is it it, it does not see things in terms of black and white. So from a safety one perspective, we might assume either that the system is working Or that people are making mistakes, for instance.
1: Oh yeah. I noticed that, that a safety incident was some aircraft get within a certain fixed distance and like above that distance, it's not an incident. Blow it. It is. And that, I mean, that's kind of arbitrary.
3: Yeah, it is. So that's how, that's our how formal definition of an incident. It's, it, it's fairly arbitrary, but it's built around, you know, a certain safe distance between aircraft with some, you know, with, with some good reasons for that. But in all industries, um, in, in the medical industry where there are medical mistakes by surgeons or by pharmacists or by anestheti- anesthesiologists and, and so on, uh, or in the oil and gas industry, uh, if you imagine if you're a worker in, any of those and the only time that you see a safety specialist is when something goes wrong or when something could go wrong then your association with safety is pretty much a negative one right whereas the alternative is that you you don't neglect that you look at that but you also ask questions about why things go right so when i start a safety workshop for instance I'll often start with this question. So I'll I'll open the group and I'll say, I'm really curious. If you could describe to your neighbor why you have a safe operation, what would you say? If I'm talking to air traffic controllers, what I'm interested in there is how far outside of their own room of colleagues does their answer go? Does that make sense? So if they say to me, oh, well, we're really safe because we're super competent as air traffic controllers which they are and you know we we take our job seriously we take safety seriously that's all true i'm interested in does their explanation go beyond their group do they also mention engineers management uh, safety specialists do they mention you know how the equipment is well designed and how it's well maintained and so on so that's the kind of question that you could ask to try to uncover um, assets or strengths within an organization Uh, I will also finish with a similar kind of question at the end of the workshop as well. You know, like, what is the one thing that you would say you really cherish or you would really want to protect that you would never want to lose when it comes to safety in this organization? And that just kind of gets people thinking. It might be their own competency, for instance, that it's really important to me that I feel confident and competent. Or it might be something else.
1: I love safety 2 because I mean safety 1 has like limited potential. The best that can happen is nothing. And safety 2 has unlimited potential cuz while you're discovering what keeps us safe, you're also discovering what makes us great
3: and that can go all kinds of ways. Yeah, that's that. That's right. You, you need both. You know, it's not an either or. Safety one is looking at when things go wrong or when they could go wrong. You've got a, a significant risk. Now you have to focus on that. You have to pay a lot of attention to that. With safety two, though, you're you're expanding that to include all experience, all outcomes in the system. When things go really, really well, or just everyday work that mostly is ignored because it's not seen as significant.
1: You have a phrase. uh, You have a whole magazine episode. Episode. What do you call an episode of a magazine? An issue. Issue. Yeah. (laughs) You have a whole magazine issue about the difference between work as done, as it really happens, versus work as imagined. Right. But that's something we struggle with in software because even when we're imagining our own future work, we imagine it going well, and we Mm -hmm. make very optimistic estimates.
3: Yeah. So that magazine issue was to in a way, reframe a very traditional way of thinking about performance. And that traditional way of thinking about performance is success and failure. So either things are going well or people are making mistakes. So we use the label human error or violations. They're breaking procedures. They're breaking the rules. That's been a dominant narrative for such a long time that it's hard to think of it in another way and it's hard to eliminate the negative connotations from words like human error and especially violation which is a terrible word it's a violent word but in safety circles it's quite a common word so we kind of reframe that using these words work is imagined and work is done now work is done is straightforward that's just what you do right that's it's actual activity that you do right? Anybody can watch you doing. So that's work as done. Work as imagined is what other people individually in groups or as an organization think you do. And it's also what you think you do and what you think you will do or would have done. Does that make sense as a distinction?
1: Yeah. So when there's a difference between work as imagined and work as done, when you phrase it that way, the obvious thing seems to do to change how work is imagined. Whereas when you call it a violation, it's the other way around.
3: Right. Yeah. So you've kind of hit on something that many people in safety don't understand yet. Um, the, the common approach is to change work as done because we we imagine that our imagination is the correct way to do things. We rarely imagine that our imagination is the wrong way to do things. And so traditionally, we would say, try to pull workers done. We wouldn't call it that, of course. We'd just uh, call it, you know, whatever, activity or the the work. Pull it in line with workers imagined. But there's another nuance here. There's another kind of work, and and that's workers prescribed. So you've got workers imagined. That's what organizations think. It's what people, individuals, and and, uh, and groups think. But when you put that into a procedure or a standard, or uh, regulation, something like that, or even into equipment as the design of equipment where you have a certain workflow, then that's work as prescribed.
1: That Um, happens a lot in software. We're prescribing work by the options that we give people on the screens.
3: Yeah. I guess you've got a natural flow between imagining something and then coding and thereby prescribing a workflow. Yeah,
1: Yeah. And we don't think of software as prescriptive. We think of it as like Um, speeding people up or making it easier, but we're also leading them into certain paths and making other paths impossible.
3: Right. That's like a forcing function. Yeah. We would call that a forcing function, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think we can also think of it as um, the difference between how you think your code
3: is going to run and how it actually runs. You know, that's the source of bugs. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, and and that's this another kind of work as imagined. This is work as imagined within us, you know, about our own work. And the only thing that we can say is true is that what we imagine is probably wrong. Things rarely go exactly as we imagine. It's usually, at least incomplete. Yeah, it's incomplete. We usually take a bit more time, or it just doesn't go the same way, you know, that we imagine. But there's a fourth type of work, and that's called work as disclosed.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> so,
3: as if it wasn't, as if life wasn't complicated enough, then we have the kind of work that we tell other people that we do. The key thing here is that it's not necessarily what we do do. So when we disclose what we do, whether it's verbally or via a written report, we typically are quite guarded and we're motivated and partial. And so we don't disclose everything that we do or everything that we plan to do. For very good reasons. So that's kind of the fourth player in this whole uh this whole act. I can tell you a little bit more about the, the workers imagined work has done and maybe after the this conversation I can send you a link to this. But there's a man in the UK called Martin Bromley, who's an airline pilot. One day his wife went in for a routine operation. It was an operation on the sinuses and it was no big deal. Um, It was just a routine operation of the nature that anyone could really have. During the operation, I think Martin and his family just went out, did some shopping, did some fairly routine stuff. But during that operation, things were going very badly wrong in the operating theatre. The operating staff, the surgeon and the anaesthetist was unable to intubate Martin's wife, who's called Elaine Bromley. So they could not get the tube down through into the lungs which meant that she was actually starving of oxygen. Too much time passed. And you know what it's like when you're engaged in a stressful activity. Time does go quicker than you think. Too much time passed, and she lost a lot of oxygen to the brain. Oh, no. Somebody, a nurse, I think a nurse or an assistant, came in with a tracheostomy kit. Now, this is the kind of kit that you would use to cut a hole into the throat to insert the tube directly into the lung to bypass mm-hmm. the blockage in the throat. They announced that they had the kit. The surgeon and the anaesthetist, who were so engaged in the task of trying to intubate, either did not notice or they ignored. Nobody really knows. Unfortunately, Elaine starved of oxygen, and she died during that routine operation. After the operation, well, you can't imagine, Martin went back to the hospital to be greeted with the worst possible news, that his wife had died. In an operation that was purely routine. He was an airline pilot and what he said was, well, I hope that you will learn from this accident. There'll be an investigation. And they said, oh, there's no investigation. We don't do that unless you make a complaint. He also said, well, will you incorporate this in your team training? You know, you'll have training to, and you could use this as a, a scenario so that other people don't suffer the same terrible fate. And they said, oh, we don't do that. The point is about workers imagined and workers done. Martin became very involved in human factors and in safety and in healthcare since that day. And he's asked many surgeons, many anesthetists, and he's told them about this story. And what they have said to him is, we wouldn't have done what they did, right? We wouldn't have done that. You always think that. Yeah, you always think that. But then what he said was, when you put the same people in a simulator where there's a similar situation that descends into a disordered event – perhaps a chaotic event. So it could be a simulated stab wound, for instance. What happens is they do something quite similar. They do what they didn't think that they would do. They perhaps don't pay enough attention to the people around them. They focus in on a task. And he gives this as an example of the difference between work as imagined and work as done. But it's the work that you imagine that you would do in a similar situation.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Dr. Atul Gawande's uh, checklist manifesto where he talked about The checklists that airline pilots go through are very rigorous and very well studied and give them very clear procedures when any sort of thing goes wrong. And he had to fight for years and years and years to bring that to the operating room to have that same sort of, okay, this happens. Now we go to this checklist. Let's run it down. Make sure we don't forget anything.
3: That's right. And and now these are this checklist, this World Health Organization checklist. Is quite routinely implemented but again there's a difference between workers imagined and workers done so we have workers imagined and then we have the workers prescribed which is the checklist and then we have workers done workers done is actually there are big variations in how people use the checklist in some cases people use the checklist after all of the steps on the checklist have actually been done right so in a way this is kind of this is bringing the workers disclosed into it because people are disclosing something that hasn't really happened you know, they're not ticking things off at the same time that they're being done. And there may be good reason for that. For instance, you may be sterile. And if you have to use a checklist, especially if it's a, uh, you have to hold a pen, then that's going to be quite difficult. So, um, there's issues in the implementation of things like that as well. But you're, you're right. That's, that's one manifestation of workers imagined in a form of workers prescribed that you hope will be done in, in actual activity.
0: I think this is true not just in, the workplace like when you were telling that story I was thinking about not to get like too political or anything but you hear a lot of stories about you know oh someone got harassed on the subway and nobody said anything or like someone got assaulted and like nobody called an ambulance because they expected someone else to do it and I think it's very easy to say like well if I was there I would have done it but I think that you know maybe you don't necessarily really know what you would do in a very similar way to your story
3: right yeah the chances are according to the research in social psychology the chances are that you that you wouldn't have, have done anything you know just like everybody else because as you infer there there's this diffusion of responsibility everybody else thinks that somebody else is going to do something but we we're not very good at imagining what we would do in a certain a certain situation. And I guess there are some professions that help to train individuals such that there's more certainty. So the military, the, uh, the, the uh, police force, um, uh, emergency, uh, emergency wards and so on, that, that's where they will train such that perhaps you've got a better chance of doing what you imagine that you might do.
1: And in that kind of situation where work as imagined is different from work as observed, as we see that people actually do it, um, that's, that's an opportunity to, can we, can we change the system such that the situation is different so that people act more the way they would want to have acted? Right. And that gets back into um, the balance between system performance and human well-being. Sometimes the best thing you can do for human well-being is to shift focus to the system for a while.
3: Absolutely. That, that brings us to me. In a way, right back to human factors and ergonomics, because in, in, in this discipline, we're trying to adjust the system to meet human needs. And we're basically interested in questions like, um, you know, what do you need to do a good job? I mean, that's a really basic, but important question. And also, what does a good job look like to you? You know, so what do you need from your environment, from your hardware, from the people around you, from the social environment and the natural physical built environment? in order to do a good job and it's a fairly basic but revealing question
1: yeah so so as we're asking that and it, it balances with the asset question too of what do you have that's helpful what
3: do you need exactly right those two things go together and in our natural exchanges in a community or in a workplace if you observe them there's there's always this natural synergy or connection between people who have something to give and other people who who would like to receive that gift. And so if we start to think more about what our gifts are, what our skills and our passions are, then we don't need to think only about what people need and what their deficiencies are. We can think about these two in, in synergy with each other.
1: And there's such joy in actually using your gifts to help someone else. It's not a cost when you when you have an abundance of connectiveness or whatever it is, just to be able to help people with that. Of carpentry skill, for instance.
3: Yeah, and it doesn't even it might not even feel that you're helping someone. You're just experiencing joy. You're experiencing something that you love doing anyway. It, it's it's easy for you, you know. So yeah, you're you're exactly right.
1: Awesome. So this is the time where we should move into reflections. Usually we have each panelist and then the guest says something that was particularly significant in the episode or something to follow up. John, Jamie, do you have reflections?
2: I do. I think uh, what one of my big takeaways is going to be the ABCD thing, which I'm glad we really spent a lot of time talking about because it's a really great model for looking at um, not only intra group relationships, but also interpersonal relationships and, and thinking about ways that I can bring that into my everyday life. I think will be really valuable.
0: I agree actually um I thought that that was really really valuable too and I particularly liked um the conversation we had about people who are connectors versus networkers or there was another one we said yeah like, yeah Gappers. Yes. And, um, I think that it's really interesting because the differences are subtle, but they're definitely there. And I think talking about it really in a, like a self-aware way like that is really helpful because I'm going to think more about like aspects of myself that I think are like connector aspects and how to foster those. And also, um, other people in my life that, um, fill in those roles and like,
1: uh, how I can like appreciate them. So I think that's really good. That part also made me appreciate that like right now I'm in a very small company. And when you start at a small company, you know everyone in the organization. So then as the company grows, you continue to know someone in every part of the organization. And I've seen that be very valuable in other people in um, formerly small companies. So I'm appreciating that I get to be there now. I also noticed that in people's assets, there are gifts, skills, and passion and We tend to hire only for skills, which is also the only one of these things that is easy to change. So that's kind of a something that we could do differently. There's all kinds of action items in the episode today, and I am excited to implement them at my next conference and ask people more questions. Stephen, do you have one?
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in what your gifts are. What is it that your people closest to you would say your gifts are? All We're you.
1: all great podcasters.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> that I have be, great that hair. A, That's about that it. A, that could be a skill. It's a form of connecting. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, uh, we 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 work in totally different fields. Of course, I know very little to nothing about programming. So this is a form of gapping between two different worlds. Mm. There's already plenty of connection that goes on within our worlds, probably, but there's fairly little of this kind of gapping that goes on between these worlds.
1: Right? That's why it's so interesting to have you on this podcast, where a bunch of developers will listen to it and get this whole new perspective. And you're clearly a a gapper because you're not in air traffic control, you're not controller, you're not um, in healthcare, but yet you bridge those fields.
3: Yeah, I I get joy from this kind of curiosity and, um, also just from introducing people to different, different things, you know, to different kinds of information and to learning that myself. It's just being a lifelong amateur learner, you know, it's, it's that kind of, or, um, apprentice might be a better way to say it, you know, to feel like I'm a lifelong apprentice in the company of masters who can teach me about what they do. I like to be in this role of learning about what people do and being curious about that.
0: This was just a really great conversation. Thank you for coming on, Stephen.
3: Thank you for inviting me, and I hope it's yeah. something that's meaningful and and that that listeners can benefit from.
1: Definitely. It is. I'm excited to share this episode. Yeah, you me too. too. Thank you.